Hey, if you're new, I'm Brad. I'm the lead pastor here, and I want to uh, transition us into our time in Scripture by saying a little bit about the most recent TV show that I binged watched. I know you're not supposed to do that. It's not healthy to do all the time, but I did it anyway. <laughs> the show called The Bear. Any fans out there? Oh, there's some fans. Okay. Uh, it's on Hulu, but it's an FX show. It's the most popular FX show in its history. Uh, and uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is that every uh, character in this show is filled with incredible potential. But all of that potential is contained in lives of suffering. They're all in so much pain, and they're wrestling through it together. At the center of it all is this guy. His name is Carmen. Uh, they call him Carmi, Italian-American guy, in, uh, set in Chicago. He uh, once worked at um, the most popular restaurant in the United States of America as the number two chef there. So he's an incredibly talented guy. But as we find him in the very first scene of the show, he's running a small, struggling, dirty family shop in Chicago. His charismatic older brother, Mikey, uh, had been running this shop, and Mikey has died by suicide. And Carmi has come home, uh, and he's desperately trying to put the restaurant back together. And it's sort of a symbol of the manner in which he's trying to put his family back together. And at the center of that, he's really trying to put his own life back together. He also is a person carrying many, many wounds. In one really intense scene, he flashes back to the glory days of his time in New York City. He's working at a restaurant. It's um, like a three-star Michelin-rated restaurant. I don't know that much about the food industry, but this is a window in, and it's apparently like the military inside that kitchen. It's super intense. And he looks like overwhelmed here, because the number one chef in that space completely rips him apart. He's in his ear telling him, you're terrible at this. You're no good. You have no talent. Why are you so slow? Why do you hire such idiotic people? You are talentless. You will never make it. And then there's this whispering voice that says, you shouldn't even be alive. And it's unclear whether that voice is coming from number one chef or whether the, all of those terrible voices from number one chef have found themselves into his inner being, that his own self-accusation. The story of the bear is the story of fighting against all of those voices or a community, a team of people fighting against all of those voices that try to make a life that's good and beautiful and whole. It's a wonderful story with a lot of profanity in it, so I should say, by the way. So if your soul is sensitive to profanity, do not watch it with your kids, especially. But I use it as an illustration because I think there's a way which many of us could identify with those dynamics. Many of us are very, very in touch with the external voices in our world. Even if you're succeeding in the midst of them, we can be very attuned to the voices that are saying to us, you are never going to make it. Why are you here? Why do you do such dumb things? We hear those voices 
from some of the most beloved people in our lives at times. And like in the story, sometimes those accusing voices arise from deep within. They're just playing in the background of our minds. And the question that I want to ask us all is when we have been beaten down, how is it possible to bounce back? Or if you have someone in your circle of concern, a family member, a child, a parent, or someone on your work team, when they've been beaten down, is it possible to help them bounce back? Today's text gives us some sense of a way forward. I hope it's helpful to you. We've been doing this deep dive into remarkable people of the Old Testament. Today's character is named Hannah. We read about her at the very beginning of the Old Testament book called 1 Samuel. There is a 1 Samuel and a 2 Samuel, though originally just big one big long scroll. Because the Old Testament story covers a really long period of time in many cultures, let me give a little context so you know where this fits. God sets his people free from enslavement in Egypt. They wander through the wilderness for 40 years. That wandering is some sort of clue to us that while they had terrible external problems in the form of their enslavement, not all of their problems are external to their being. Turns out some of their problems are in their own hearts. And we see that because they finally enter into the promised land. This happens in the books of Joshua and Judges. And it's not the return to Eden that they had been hoping for. They occupy the land. But their rulers are just a little bit better than their Egyptian slave masters. They are not slave masters like their Egyptian slave masters were. But they descend into their own kind of darkness. They are not good to one another. But God does not give up on his people. That's the story of the scriptures. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new each day. So, first and second Samuel tell riveting stories about the first great men of the kingdom of Israel, Samuel, Saul, and David. These are great men that are part of God's story of redemption. But none of their lives would have been possible without this one great woman. So let's tune into the great woman, Hannah. 1 Samuel 1, this text is a little bit longer than we typically read. It's about 20 verses long. So if you got ADHD, you know, put your concentration cap on and uh, we'll go through the whole thing. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. Now get ready for a bunch of Hebrew names. His name is Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. Okay, this is establishing this man Elkanah as part of the tribe of Levi. He's part of a priestly tribe. And it says in verse 2 that he had two wives. The one was named Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. This is close to Jerusalem. 
He goes to Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Very terribly haunting words there, which we'll return to momentarily. Verse 6, it says that her rival, Peninnah, used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Peninnah used to provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, I'll pause here. There's more to the story to go. But I just want to say, not very good husbanding, okay? So, for all of you tuning in, don't do that. Hannah is in extraordinary pain. If you've struggled with fertility, if you know someone in your circle of friends who struggled with fertility, even today, an extraordinarily vulnerable and painful experience, and back then would have been many times more over. Having children would have been a form of social security. There was no savings in those days. Your children were going to take care of you. So Hannah is incredibly vulnerable. And in a patriarchal society, for a woman, bearing children was like a source of self-esteem. And hers is torn away from her by her life experience. Her husband is well-intended. He does love her, and he gives her a double portion of food, so he's tuned in to the reality that all is not well, and I guess he gets a brownie point for that. And then he makes it about himself. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Just a little bit of ego there. All you guys, do not do that. All right, that was for free. Um, The story carries on in verse 9. It says that after they'd eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord as she wept bitterly. As she made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant one male child. Then I will set him before you as a Nazarite to the day of his death. And Nazarite's this special vow of devotion. We see it here as it unfolds. It says that he shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. And Eli is watching her. He observes her mouth. It says in verse 13, Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Okay, enter stage left, bad guy, number two. 
Eli says to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. And Hannah answers, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong Greek, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Interesting parallelism there. I'm not pouring drink. I'm pouring out everything, all of the pain of my heart, she says. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and the vexation all of this time. Now, a little bit more of the story, but just to say again, Eli is a priest. His job is to connect hurting people to the presence of the living God. But he is doing the opposite of that here. He adds insult to injury. And rather than responding to a person in pain with kindness and compassion, he castigates her. He accuses her. If you're a reader of the New Testament, you might remember Jesus speaking to the leaders of his day, saying you bear, you are heaping up heavy burdens upon people. They're too heavy to carry, and you are doing nothing to help them. That's what Eli is like. Until he finally tunes in and kind of slowly comes to himself. And then he says, and this closes the story, verse 17, it says that Eli answers, go in peace, the God of Israel, grant the petition you've made to him. And she said to him, let your servant find favor in your sight. And then it all comes together here. So if you lost concentration in this long story, refocus for a moment. It says that the woman, Hannah, went her way and ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to the house at Ramah, and Elkanah Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. Of course, that's a biblical idiom. So they had sexual relations. They were intimate with one another. And then it says, the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. In the Hebrew, Samuel sounds like asking. I have asked him of the Lord. When you have been beaten down, How is it possible to bounce back when your guts have been eviscerated, when your courage has been stolen? How is it possible to regain the courage and the strength to seize the day as we all want to do? Well, I think the story of Hannah gives us some indication that it is possible to bounce back If you are a person of worship, this story gives us a picture about the power of a worshiping person and a worshiping community. In the trajectory of this story, all indications are that life is hard. Life is a kick in the gut at times. Put yourself in Hannah's sandals. She's childless. She's mocked by her rival. And it says that she's mocked year after year after year. If you had your Bible open and you were circling adjectives, you know, those descriptive words that talk about her sense of being or what we might call these days her mental health, you would circle words like she was weeping 
that she couldn't eat. She was lovesick. She was distressed, bitter, troubled, anxious, vexed. She's desperately trying to put the pieces of the puzzle of her life together, and they do not seem to fit. Maybe you know somebody who feels that way. And maybe there are some of us here that feel that way. Hannah, in the Hebrew, means favored. But she feels anything but favored. And yet, we find her in this story, pressing through to come to the place of worship, year after year after year. Sadly, her experience of the people in her life is that they are a mixture. There are mostly bad people like this woman, Peninnah. Maybe Peninnah, we could also consider another tortured soul locked into a system in which she doesn't know her worth and is taking it out on another person. Maybe you're surrounded by hurting people who are transmitting their pain and anguish in life to you. There's Eli, the religious leader, who doesn't seem like he's a bad guy. We'll find out later in the story that his sons are bad guys. He's just off. He misses the note. He misunderstands her sorrow and accuses her of something terrible. And then again, like I said before, there is this husband who really does seem to love her, who does what he can. He's just not all that skilled a counselor. He makes it about himself. This story is an indication to us all that the people of our lives always at some point let us down. Sometimes because there's a terrible flaw in their hearts. And there are some people in our lives that are toxic and we should run away from them as fast as we can. And the story is also saying that there are people in our lives who genuinely love us and who are doing their best and who nevertheless are broken souls who sometimes make things worse. The story is telling us that the hole inside the human heart is greater than another person can fill. So I pray that you find yourself into a good family, into a good circle of friends, into a good church like this one. But even if you find all of those things, I think this story is telling us that there will be at some time a disappointment in your heart that your friends cannot take away. Hannah experiences all of these realities, and yet she keeps pressing forward into the place of worship. It seems that nothing will deter her from coming into the presence of God. I'll pause here and just say that in American Christianity, suffering is an extraordinary crisis. For so many American Christians, when the time of suffering comes, it just feels like, I quit. God's not there anymore. I'm suffering. Our faith so often crumbles in our time of suffering. But Hannah's faith does not crumble in her suffering. Hannah's faith does not crumble when the people around her are a disappointment to her. She presses through the insensitive voices as if she had some sort of vibranium shield. She keeps going. 
she continues again and again to present herself to the Lord. Nothing will keep her from getting into the presence of God. And in verse 15, it becomes quite clear that she's not just going through the motions, showing up. It says that she pours out her soul in that place. She exposes everything that's within her, all her thoughts and all her pain, all her guts, all out on the altar of God until she finds a resting place there. This is where one finds the strength and grace to bounce back, especially when we've been beaten down. God responds with a great miracle. Hannah gives birth to the kingdom's first great man, a prophet named Samuel. And then in the second chapter of 1 Samuel, she unleashes a litany of praise, which is remembered to this day. It's an impressive prayer. She talks about how there is no rock like our God. And she talks about how God is the God who bends low and raises the poor from the dust. How God sees the needy. He's the God of knowledge, she says. He knows what we're going through and he lifts us up from the ash heap. And her prayer is so impressive and so memorable that Mary, the mother of Jesus, riffs off it in her Magnificat, her voice of praise in the New Testament. But as impressive as this prayer is, and as impressive as the miracle is, what's even more impressive to me, and what I want to draw all of our attention to today, is that the condition of her heart changes before her external circumstance changes. The text says that she ate and drank. She went to the place of worship and that she was sad no more. She let the presence of God affect her heart before she got an answer to what it is that she was asking for. And in allowing her heart to be touched by the grace of God, by allowing her heart to be satisfied by the presence of God, before any answer to her prayer came, Hannah shows us the way of authentic faith. The contemporary author Philip Yancey says this. He says, I have learned that faith means trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. The call to faith is to trust in advance what will only make sense in reverse. It's to allow the presence of God to be the solution to our deepest aches. Let me say it this way. The grace of God, the presence of God, make it possible for all of us to be content and to be whole, regardless of our circumstance. Regardless of our circumstance. And it is when we find that place of contentment and wholeness in the presence of God regardless of what happens around us, that is when we will find ourselves able to be most helpful to our friends, to our family, and to the world around us. We, friends, are called into the presence of a good heavenly Father. And Jesus invites us to ask the Father for whatever we need. 
with full confidence that God always hears every prayer and that he will withhold no good thing. And uh, the writer James in the New Testament tries to stir our faith by saying that so often we have not because we ask not. The New Testament is saying we should be asking people, and that we should. But the central message here is not that we get whatever we ask for. We do not always get whatever we ask for. Jesus' own prayer was not answered in the affirmative. He said, let this cup pass. Let this, cu- let this suffering pass. The Father said, this is the way. Let me give you grace in it. Now, the central message of all of these stories is that we will always get more of God when we approach him. If we ask for what we desire and then open our hearts to any way in which God is giving himself, well, then we will walk in faith and then we will experience true power and true contentment. Friends, God himself is the gospel. He is our portion and our prize. And the person who has God as their portion and prize will never lack in this world. Or as one prominent pastor said, there is a world of difference between God-cherishing faith and gift-cherishing idolatry. Let us love God first. God-cherishing faith opens the door to the wonders of God's kingdom. Some of you know that I lost my father in the first part of this year. And so I just want to say personally that a lot of prayers not answered in the affirmative. I prayed that his dementia wouldn't progress. Yet it did. I prayed for one last moment of uh, clear-mindedness. Sometimes that happens with people in dementia, and there's an opportunity to say goodbye and to connect. And that did not happen. But there are all sorts of other ways that God showed up in our midst to put on display the beauty and tenderness of God and to grow us all up in love and to bring the deep wounds of our family into the light and to begin the process of healing many of those wounds. And at the center of all that, a demonstration that God is present there and continuing to do a good thing for us. God will give us himself without measure as we come to him like Hannah again and again and again. That's what it means to be a worshiping people like Hannah. By way of moving towards worship, I want to say that I think as a community, we are an awful lot like Hannah. We are swimming in the world of heavy things. You've seen all the statistics. We've talked about them here about mental health in the United States. I was just looking at them again this past week. Johns Hopkins University said that 26% of American adults have a diagnosable mental illness. Everyone's got a mental illness or is walking with someone who has a mental illness. Who's not connected to somebody who's in pain? There's a reason why The Bear is the most watched show in the history of FX on Hulu. We live in a world in which we are taunted 
by dark voices ever whispering in our ears, berating us, challenging us, asking, where is your God? And the story of Hannah tells us that in this present darkness, as in her present darkness, God is at work to redeem and to restore. To, at the most, at the most surprising time and in the most surprising way, to raise up prophets and kings. And you and I are invited to be a part of that miraculous story. We are part of it to the extent that we as individuals and communities choose, like Hannah, to cultivate a heart of faith, a heart of worship. I want to invite Eddie to come forward now. We always end a time of teaching with some sort of processing time, some way to get the ideas from our heads and kind of into our gut, into our heart. So I want to invite Eddie to lead us in prayer for that today. Good morning, church. Let's let the presence of God affect our hearts. Just want to invite you to bow with me. Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you to come. I imagine that as Brad has been teaching, um, those whispers, the things that have been spoken over us or from within or from outside of us have surfaced or circumstances that have um, we've been praying for that have uh, not resulted in our, the way we had hoped. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just come. Thank you that you are the God that draws near to the brokenhearted and that you bind up her wounds you bind up his wounds. You bind up your children's wounds. Father, I pray for those things that have been spoken over your people, over your beloved children. Thank you, God, for the cross. I pray that your blood, Jesus, would just wash away the lies that we have hooked into that are not from you. You are not the accuser. You are not the one who irritates us and berates us. Let's wash them away in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would beckon your people into your presence. that they would know the truth, that the Lord says you are beloved. That you are always on his mind. Your name is upon his lips. He loves you so. Holy Spirit, just let that pierce through the layers of our defenses, that that is true about who you are. 
God, we invite you to give us more of you. Thank you that we only need faith like a mustard seed. That you knew from the beginning that we could not do um, what we needed to be close to you. That's why you sent, sent Jesus to fill the gap. Lord, you knew that we're only human. And so you sent your beloved son to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do for us, even in our faith, Lord, that um, when our faith is weak, Lord, or even so small, Lord, you remain faithful. So, Lord God, I pray that you would fan what little faith we have with your presence and that you would give us more of yourself. I pray that over my brothers and sisters in this room for ways that they have been aching and crying out for um, resolve for whatever circumstances. I pray, Father, that you would rush in and provide more of yourself. Encounter your people this morning. Beckon them to just pour out their heart before you, just like Hannah did. And continue to speak the truth over their identities. That they are children of the Most High God. And that nothing can separate them from your love. We pray these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.